0: if you will turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 verses 16 through 21 will be our passage for today. We're going to start by reading that passage. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat backs. If there's not one directly in front of you, feel free to ask. Um, there should be plenty of them. hear some bibles turning pages i guess Um, john chapter 6 verses 16 through 21 i'm going to go ahead and read those when evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to capernaum it was now dark and jesus had not yet come to them the sea became became rough because of a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or four miles they saw jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I believe most of us are familiar with uh, the story of Jesus walking on water. That is our, our passage for today. Uh, but I think we're more familiar with the passages in Matthew and Mark. They kind of give the fuller picture where Peter calls out to Christ and says, if it's you, call me out there, and he walks and falls into the water. Um, That's found in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, so we're going to be kind of referring back to those passages in light of where we are today, Uh, but I believe John's intent as he as he gives this story, it's, it's, it's a few less verses than those accounts. I believe he was trying to narrow his focus on what Jesus' uh, intention was in the uh, walking on water. Um, so last week, Pastor covered the feeding of the 5,000, and, and there was a discussion that was had then that will kind of continue on with this week as well as through the rest of John chapter 6. Uh, there's, it, it's kind of one big story that we get in this in this chapter and it's almost like a sandwich uh, from the first 15 verses and then the last I forget let me it's like last 45 50 verses at the end of the chapter they kind of those are those are parallel stories in a sense and then we have this uh, meat here in the middle of it but um the the intent that Jesus is trying to get across in this passage is is basically this it's Jesus is our provider and we shouldn't trust anyone else. There there should be no trust that we hand over to anyone like we trust in the Lord. Now, as I've been studying this week, I've I've thought a lot about the disciples, obviously thinking about who Jesus is, but trying to put myself in the shoes of the disciples. We have the benefit of hindsight, and, and we can kind of look, and as we're reading through the story, we know where it's going But as the disciples are going through this, they they didn't know where they were going. They're they're living this story out. So we get genuine, authentic um, emotions and experiences and and reactions from the disciples. And and I kind of want to paint that picture for us so we can kind of get an idea of where they're coming from. If you think about what Jesus looked like in, in the flesh, Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no form, no majesty, no beauty that anyone would look upon him. He was... An average-looking guy. In the flesh, he was an average-looking guy. He could blend in with the crowd, right? As they sought to stone him or capture him, he was able to blend in with the crowd because he didn't stand head head and shoulders over anybody. He wasn't extremely short. He didn't have these striking features that we typically see in in the movies where they're depicting what Jesus looks like. He just looked like your average run-of-the-mill Hebrew at that time. But he wasn't like the other Hebrews. Right? He didn't act like the other rabbis. What Jesus did, he, he chose fishermen. He didn't choose the cream of the crop when it came to uh, the training up of men. He, he chose the uneducated men. He performed miracles. He openly rebuked the, uh, the religious leaders of his day. And as we saw last week in verse 15, he refused to take, uh, be taken as king, but he was determined to do all that the father had sent him to do. This was who Jesus was but he he didn't have some appearance that looked like he looked like every other man. So I think when we think about who Jesus was in the flesh what the disciples saw with their own two eyes, it's easy to understand the reservations and hesitations and doubts that they had. And I believe John uh the writer of this gospel had that same perspective. I think he was impacted by the Lord in that way where he gives his intent of his gospel when he writes this at the end of it in John 20 verse 31, he says this was written so that you may believe that Jesus, the man that, that walked with him, Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. I I believe he saw the, and understood the difficulty that man's heart has with trusting their life with someone. I, I believe that that, I believe that to be true. Now, even as Christians, as born-again believers, we still have that struggle, trusting Christ with all of our lives, especially when trials come, when things don't make sense. That tends to be where we go. We believe, but we pray that God helps our unbelief. That's, that's that struggle that we have as his people now, as we kind of go on, we, we have our, our sermon summary, and, and I, I believe scripture is the best way to kind of summarize scripture, and I believe we see that, we see an application of that exact point in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and this is kind of summarizes our, our sermon for today. It says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is another word for endurance, perseverance, this, this holding on to what is true. Now, we're going to go ahead and get into this. We're breaking this down into three points like your typical Baptist sermon. Uh, first, we're going to look at verses 15 through 18. Then we're going to look at verse 19, then 20 and 21. Uh, but let's go ahead and reread. I want to read verse 15 to kind of um, pull him back from last week to help us paint the picture for today. So let's reread those verses 15 through 18. It says this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So, Right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus, right, we have to remember that there was 5,000 men plus women and children, could have been anywhere between 5 and 20,000 potentially, these people were recognizing who Jesus was to a certain extent. Uh, in, In Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15, there is this mention from Moses where he said there will be a prophet that will come after him and they are to listen to them. And so their understanding was was loosely based around that, based on the miracles that Jesus was performing, but Jesus perceiving in their hearts what they attempted to do uh, by making him king. They didn't want to make him king because he was King Jesus. They wanted to make him king to overthrow the Roman rule. He decided to withdraw from them, to sneak out and and go, go go alone for a time of prayer. He sends his disciples off, and he's going to go for a time of prayer. Now... I kind of want to take a, a side step on this. I believe it's related, but I kind of want to take a side step when when I mention that Jesus is praying. Right, he sends after the, performing this wonderful miracle. Right, feeding five thousand pe- uh, people plus with what Pastor mentioned was five Twinkies and two sardines. Right, it was kind of the 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 idea of the the size of the food that he offered. Um, feeding that feeding that many people with twelve uh, bundles or baskets left over afterwards was this wonderful miracle. After that's done, he, he, he takes off, right? He sends his disciples off and he needs to spend time in prayer. I believe this is very important for us to see as we're, as we're um, going through this passage because Jesus spent time in prayer often. Now, as I did my study, it wasn't exhaustive, but as I kind of Googled and, and looked up different passages of scripture, I've, I was able to locate throughout the gospels uh, 25 different instances that God is quoted as praying now, I find that encouraging and convicting for many reasons. I'm just going to give us three of them. First, Scripture commands us to pray without ceasing. Right? First and foremost, we are commanded to be people of prayer. That, that's what we are to do. Jesus did this. So Jesus, as a second point, Jesus in his humanity recognized his need for God to, to equip him, to lead him, to, to renew his mind, to, to do all the things that he needed to in the flesh. Uh, to be that example for us as he walked in this earth. Thirdly, with that, uh, this was just another example of Jesus praying for himself, praying for his ministry, but then also praying for us as his people, interceding on our behalf. I think this is very significant, and we'll kind of get back into that later, but I just wanted to take a little time to reference that, that Jesus went went aside for a time of prayer uh, to pray for himself and to pray for his people. Now, this time that Jesus spent in prayer was not a short amount of time. I believe we can safely assume that the feeding of the 5,000 was probably lunchtime, a midday meal. Feeding 5,000 people obviously would take a little longer than a normal lunch hour. But I think it's safe to say that this was midday, and then he sends off the disciples, and and roughly around evening time is when Jesus went to uh, spend his time in prayer. Now, according to Matthew 14 and Mark 6, we're told that, He spent time in prayer until the fourth watch. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that terminology, it's it's based on the the Roman culture. There was different watches for different watchmen. And uh, basically, the first watch started around sunset until 9 o'clock. Then from 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock was second watch. Third watch, uh, midnight to 3. And then fourth watch would have been 3 to 6. So Jesus is spending these hours in prayer, right? Somewhere between 6 and 9 hours, God has... Jesus uh, has been spending time in prayer. Now, this is, I believe this is significant because what this did, it allowed the disciples to travel. He sends them off to Capernaum. Uh, It allowed them time to get on the water, get into the middle of the the sea, go through this storm, and then for him to come back and, and meet them in the water. Now, something that, and, and exactly, sis, I think something that we need to take from that is that he's spending this time in prayer and he sends his people out, something that's crucial for us to recognize that as Jesus is praying, he's, he's not just idle in his time, right? He is active the entire time. When, when he sends his people off, there is activity on, on Jesus' behalf. He's never reactive in this time. Now, what I mean by that is, and I, I want to use it, just hear me out. Don't close off if, if this is something that could potentially offend you. But Jesus is not a first responder when, in our time of need. right? First responders are a gift from God to us. They are wonderful. If there's an emergency, there are people who respond to these emergencies. But they need an emergency to respond. But Jesus is not that way. What, what does Scripture tell us about Jesus? Scripture tells us that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Right. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He doesn't respond in times of trouble. He doesn't he doesn't have to wait upon those things. He actually brings it about to test us and to reinforce in us the faith he gifted us with when he saved us. Amen. Right. He he doesn't wait for troubles to come for him to respond to us. He is actually bringing these things to us to test us and our faith, the faith that he gave us that is perfect right? That, that's what God does. That's what Jesus is doing. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, who, who are called according to his purpose. Jesus is active today. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, right? We can praise God for that. He is He is an active God. He is not a God that just sits back and waits for us to come to us. He's not eagerly waiting for us to respond to him. He is an active Imminent God. He He is with us. He is God with us. That is when Jesus is called Emmanuel, right? That is God with us. John 1 tells us that he is, that he came and dwelt among his people. That is a God who is concerned about his people, a God who is intentionally doing what he is supposed to do in order to bring about his great plan. Now, we cannot forget this. We cannot forget that. That is a crucial point for us. Because God is for us, but there is an adversary. There is one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There is someone who seeks to heap bondage upon us, to tempt us to turn away. And his name is Satan, right? And Satan will sift us like wheat. This will happen. This, it, it, is, it, is, it is for sure as the sun will rise, we will be sifted like wheat. But take heart, church. Jesus has prayed for us that our faith may not fail us. But when we stumble, when we turn back, we will repent and we will strengthen our brothers and sisters. Amen. We can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, for we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Let's move on to verse 19. Verse 19 says this, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. They were frightened, right? They, they weren't scared like they were when, the, uh, when Jesus was on the boat with them and the seas were really crazy and they thought they were going to die. That's not what was scaring them. They were, they were experiencing just a, an, another storm, Right. These were experienced fishermen. They knew how to handle the waters. But imagine imagine you going through your day to day life. You got we got to remember Jesus walked with these men for three years. So there's countless points in time that we just don't hear the normal day to day stuff. Right. They they could have traveled on this sea countless times, been through countless storms and made it on the other end with with no issues. Right. That's that's highly likely for them. But how many times were they out at sea, the people are manning their stations, they're ensuring that the goods and everything on the boat is taken care of, and then a man is walking on water, right? If we think about that, it's, it's we know it's Jesus, right? We know it's Jesus. As we see in, in uh, Matthew and Mark's account, when they first saw him, when he first came into their vision, they thought he was a ghost, right? Who walks on water? Nobody, Nobody walks on water, right? So if, if you're just going and doing your day-to-day stuff, your normal thing, we're trying to maintain this boat so it doesn't capsize and you just see somebody soaking wet but walking on water, it's going to freak you out. It's going to freak me out. I don't, I don't know about y'all. Maybe y'all are more sanctified than me, but I, I'm freaking out if I see that. But that's what, that's what they thought, right? This, this defied all laws of nature. Uh, it, 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 was, it was crazy. It was crazy to think that somebody, something was walking on water. But what's the difference in this miraculous act and Jesus just hours earlier feeding 5,000 people with five Twinkies and two sardines? I need to stop saying that because that's not really what it was. But with five barley loaves and two small fishes, what, what was so, that, that was also a miraculous thing, that Jesus did that, right? That, to me, that is the most, for me personally, if I'm being honest with y'all right now, that that's the most unbelievable uh miracle in in Scripture. Seeing Jesus walk on water, it's it's crazy. Like it it that still defies everything that but just having this small this small basket and Jesus blessing it and just continually pulling out food from it, it just it baffles me. Uh but that that that's I don't know, maybe that's just me. But considering the things that Jesus did, right? He healed the lame man, he changed water into wine, he, he fed the 5,000, and now he's walking on water. These are wonders and signs. These are miraculous things that Jesus is doing. But if we, if we really think about it, they're, they're, all, they're all miraculous. There's, there's nothing individually about these things that make them any more miraculous than the other. They all defy the laws of, of nature. But if we think about it, this is no different than what God did in creation, Right, if we think about there was nothing, right? God was the only person who existed, right? It was just the Godhead. That was it. There was no air, no, chem- no, no atoms, no molecules, no nothing. It was just God and He's spirit. And then He created everything, right? We went from nothing to everything that we see today. He took dirt, breathed life into it, and made man. These are miraculous things in and of themselves. And if we think about those, where was Jesus during all of that? Right, where was Jesus during all that? Well, he was right there with God, right? John 1, 1 through 3 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. All right, nothing. Everything is through him. Everything that was created came through him. He can't be a creation if everything came through him. Therefore, he would be a creation if he was part of creation, but he's before creation. Right? So Jesus walking on water was no different than the act of creation as far as him showing his power over his creation. Amen? It's an amazing thing to, to think about. But... When we go back to our passage and we think about this fright that the disciples had, they hadn't quite realized this yet, right? John is writing this gospel years later. He's able to reflect and and consider everything that Jesus did, the resurrection and all the other miracles, and then point back to this and see the the wonder uh, that he experienced. But if we put ourselves in their shoes and we kind of think about what was going on for them in this moment in time, they were frightened. Right, This word frightened in, in the original language has the same root of the word that we have, phobia. Right, So when we think of arachnophobia or whatever phobias that you think of, there, there are these fears that tend to cripple us, that tend to take hold of us physically or emotionally, mentally, and sometimes even spiritually. But this type of fear is that these men felt was was this figure walking towards them, right? I mean, who, who thinks about that? I mean, if there was a, a hurricane going on and we saw somebody walking outside in the midst of these crazy winds, that's gonna freak us out a little bit. But imagine that person turning and walking towards you. That, that, that's a, another level of fear that that brings about. But it's something that, you know, when we think about these types of things, they're, they're things that, that, that grip them, right? When, when they saw this, it was almost an irrational fear that they felt. Now, when I, when I say that, it, it brings to mind something else, and I want to challenge y'all with this, or actually ask you a question uh, concerning fear and, and where these disciples were, what brings them hope, and what brings us hope. When we think about, in our lives, the things, the fears, the phobias, the, the frightening things that grip us like the disciples, uh, what are those things? Is it the loss, potentially losing a loved one, a spouse or a child, a parent? Is it losing a job, not being able to provide for your family? Is it being thought of as a failure? Or is it just being a disappointment? What is, what is the thing that, that grips you like the disciples being gripped by this fear that they were experiencing? It's the thing that you would think of when you say, man, um, I don't know what I'd do if blank happened to me. I don't know what I'd do if that happened to me. I, I don't even want to think about it. That, that's, that's a crippling fear when we think about that situation. If we allow it to, that type of fear can do some pretty terrible things in the life of a believer. But I go back to our sermon summary. We, as God's people, can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Now let's look at verses 20 and 21 and we see Jesus' words to the disciples in the midst of their fear and terror and this, this, this whole situation. I'm going to reread those verses. It says, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now I, I kind of laugh when I read that because I think about the relief the disciples must have felt whenever they realized that it was Jesus. It was kind of like a, <gasps> okay, all right, now, yeah, now, now, okay, I'm good now. Like there's this like heightened, and the, okay, all right. Uh, so it kind of makes, I don't know, I'm, I'm weird. It makes me think about that, but that's, that's typical with most phobias, right? When we think about the things that, that make us fearful, they're usually irrational fears. You know, we have this crazy fear of bugs, or or spiders, or snakes, or cats, or dogs, whatever it is. It's usually some type of irrational fear that we have. But I want us to think about something when it comes to those fears, when it comes to things that could cripple us when we're faced with adversity and trials. The creator of of the universe, Has spoken. Right? He he has spoke, he has breathed out his word. We have those words in print, and they have been translated into our language, into English, into Spanish, into countless languages. And those words have the power to save. Right? The word, the written word of God has the power to save. Right? It takes dead, dry bones and breathes life into them. That's what God's word does for us. We were headed for hell, and God's word came, and it had the power to save. But we think about that, we we understand that to be true, but we still find reasons to not trust, to not serve, to not obey. That same word that saves us, we still find reasons to not trust it, to not serve him in light of it, and to not obey it. Now, Jesus used this circumstance to not only show his power, right? That was, the, that was one of the many reasons he did this. But he also, I believe, he also used it as an object lesson for his disciples. Now, object lesson may be viewed as a whatever term, but I don't mean to lighten what God is doing here. But he literally used objects to, to show his people a lesson. So I'm, I'm using this word, this, that phrase in the most literal sense. Uh, So first, going back, he fed the 5,000 and he showed his people through that object lesson, if you will, that people are not to rely on anyone other than him. Uh, Philip was like, well, it, it would take this much money to feed him, right? So Philip had his mind on money. Andrew was like, well, we have this small barley loaf and this and that. He had his mind on other people. Neither one of them was trusting that God would provide in that moment, right? So he showed them, no, 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 these things pale in comparison to what I do for you, right? So he was showing them that, that they needed to rely on Christ alone. Secondly, in our passage today, it was done to show his disciples that even creation bows the knee to King Jesus, amen, right? Even creation bows the knee before Jesus. He can walk on water. He can do whatever he so chooses, right? We can't. We we are fearful of the ghost, of the thing creeping in the closet, of that thing that crawls on your neck. Whatever may come, we get fearful of those things, but we have no reason to fear. Jesus, the one who is king over creation, has told us, do not fear. And I love that about verse 20. That is One of the most encouraging things that I've read in all of scripture, Christ shares these words with his disciples. And and I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself, but he shares these words with his disciples. He says, it is I. It is I. Right. As he comes, comes to them. Jesus tends to be a man of few words. But when he says them, they're they're packed full, they're jam packed full of wisdom. He says, it is I. Now, it may not seem like a whole lot on the surface in English, but if we take the original language, these are the same the same phrase, the same two words in the in the Greek are the same words that were used when God was speaking to Moses. And he was he told him, well, who, who do I tell him is sending me to Pharaoh? And he says, I am that I am right. This that's the same phrase that's being used here. It's it's it, it, it blows my mind. Right. Jesus is identifying himself once again as Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So Jesus essentially is telling them, it is I, the Lord, your God, do not be afraid. I get chills just thinking about that. Like, think about that. Like, that is the, this is the Lord, your God. You have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Oh, man, that that gets me. So as we close, I kind of want to press into that thought a little bit more. I don't, like I said, I don't believe there are more comforting words in scripture than that. To be told by God himself to not be afraid. The creator of this universe. The one who controls all things by the word of his power. He is telling you, do not be afraid. It is I. When I think about my kids Right. They'll, they'll run to me and daddy, daddy, there's a spider. There's a this, there's a that. Right. They're scared. Right. They have this phobia about those things. So I run over there and I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it. Right? I'm going to take care of it. whatever that whatever I need to do. I'm going to take care of it. They know they can come to daddy and I'm going to take care of it. Right. Most of the time. But that, that's the the thought that comes to my mind. Right. They have this irrational fear in their mind. Right they have this irrational fear in their mind that this thing is is too powerful for them. They I I can't deal with this, it's just too much. So they they come to daddy. And and but I'll, but with that in mind, knowing that they can come to me and I can help them with this, I also must recognize that if they don't face their fears in light of the love, the care, the providence, the protection that I offer to them, the next time this problem comes around, they're gonna run and hide again. That fear is gonna show its face again. So it never—it doesn't help anyone for them for their their trust not to be tested, right? It, it doesn't—it doesn't help us if God just the second we have a problem, He just okay, I'm gonna take care of that. It's done. Don't worry about it anymore, right? When will we grow? When when are we tested? When are we stretched? When are we taught to rely on Him? We're hard headed, We're like sheep. We're prone to stray. Right? So what does it take? God brings these trials to us. He brings these sufferings to us. Right? He brings all this about for our good. We are to trust in him. Jesus went through great lengths to show his people who he is. We get a great example of that in our passage today. We, as his people, go through great lengths to find any excuse as to why we cannot trust him at his word. When we have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not a gift of ours, this is not of ourselves, but is a precious gift of God, there is nothing more comforting than hearing, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us. It is a beautiful thing to be found in the loving hand of God where no one can snatch us out. But it is also a terrifying thing to be found apart from Christ and to be judged according to our works here on earth. Now I say this because if that is you today, if you have not trusted in Christ and what he has repented of your sins, this is where you are. If you have done that and you've fallen away, this is is not a good place to be in. But what Christ has done, there's there's still time, there's still good news for you. And when we think about that, think about the prodigal or whatever whatever parable or story you wanna think of, there there is still time today. Right? We're not promised tomorrow, so we don't put this off to tomorrow. We don't, we're not promised a deathbed confession, right? but today is the day we make that decision. Today is that day. So what I want to tell you is, is a couple of things. First off, if you have gone wayward, if you have never trusted in him, think on these words. Think of them as God calling you, commanding you to come home. Come home. Right? Come home. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Christ. Believe the beautiful gospel that that he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If this if this is you and this is what you do, you too can count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray.